Genesis chapter 44. Let me give you background to this story and then let me set up um, sort of the main themes and ideas of this story. So we're studying through the book of Genesis and in the book of Genesis we're studying through the life right now of a man named Joseph and Joseph was a guy who was born to uh, a, a, a father named Jacob who's considered a patriarch, which is someone who is the father of an entire nation of people. That's called the modern-day Jews or the Israelites in the Old Testament. Jacob was the founding father of that. You know, when we talk about our founding fathers, we don't mean our biological founding fathers. We didn't all descend from, you know, the same two or three or four or five guys. Now, we did in the sense that we all descended from Adam. But when we talk about as a nation, we talk about a melting pot. People have come from all kinds of backgrounds. Well, the nation of Israel began under one roof, under one house, under the house of Jacob. Now, it became a melting pot, and people were brought in from other nations and tribes and languages. But Jacob's family were the original house of Israel, the nation of Israel. And Jacob had these sons, and one of his sons was named Joseph, and he had four baby mamas, which is always a recipe for disaster. Uh, you know, like there's like that never goes good, but God is bigger than that. God is bigger than the fact that he had, he was a polygamist in that he was married to two women. And he also had two, uh, what, I guess what we would call concubines. And he had a host of sons, um, about a dozen sons and at least a daughter that we know of from these women. Well, one of the sons was named Joseph. The other brothers turned on him, and they sold Joseph into slavery behind their father's back. They sold him into slavery because Joseph had a dream, and in the dream, he envisioned all of his, and Joseph was the, one of the younger of the sons. He was, he was the, one of the youngest sons, and he envisioned all of the other brothers bowing down to him. Now, he was a teenager at this time, and he, share, he, he shared this dream with his brothers. He said, I had a dream, and you're all bowing down to me. Well, they already resented him because he was extremely responsible. The dad had given a lot of the responsibility of the family business to Joseph. And at a young age, Joseph had become sort of a supervisor to the brothers. And so the brothers turn on Joseph. They say, we got to get rid of this guy. Not only does he think that we're going to all worship him one day, but he stands to inherit the rights of the firstborn in the family, which means he's going to be over all of us when our dad dies. It's just real complicated. And so they fake his death, sell him to slave traders, which was, uh, w which those guys were nomadic and they were headed to the nation of Egypt, then tell the dad, oh, a wild animal must have killed him and the dad grieves his loss. Because Joseph was the favorite son, Joseph and his brother Benjamin were the favorite sons because they were from the favorite wife. So then the brothers go about their business Joseph is sold into slavery. He goes through a crazy series of ups and downs that we've studied. He's a slave for a period of time. Then he goes to prison wrongly and falsely accused of, uh, of sexual assault on a dignitary's woman, uh, the woman who is the wife of a dignitary, who's a very high-ranking official in Egypt. And he has to go to prison because he's been wrongly accused. And then he sits in prison for a long period of time. While he's in prison, the king of Egypt has a dream, and in the dream, he's confused because of what he sees. And someone says, hey, I know this guy Joseph. He's down there in the dungeon, in the prison, and he can interpret your dream. So they clean him up. 
They wash him up, they scrub him up, they present him to the king, and he interprets the king's dream, and the dream is this. There's going to be seven years of great plenty in the land. Lots of produce, lots of crops, all that we can imagine. Like we're going to have, y'all know what a bumper crop is? We're going to have bumper crops, bumper crops. We're going to have we're going to have so much food, but then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And famine means drought and disease and pestilence and hunger and wantonness. And so that's what your dream means. He says this to the king. And then he says, and you, O king, should appoint someone who's wise enough to manage this situation. And in the seven years of plenty, you could store and build up for the seven years of famine they're going to follow. And the king says, that's a great idea. I'm going to appoint you to be that guy. And in one stroke of God's sovereignty, this, this firstborn turned slave, turned prisoner, maximum security in a dungeon, is made into the second in command over the greatest and most powerful nation in all of the world. It's a crazy story. And it's a true story. So Joseph becomes second to the king. Um, in the passing of time, the, the first seven years come to, pass and the se- come to pass, and the second seven years begin, and sure enough, there's a famine. And Joseph's brothers, who now have no idea what's happened to him, they're assuming he's probably dead, because the life of a slave was a short-lived life, especially in those circumstances. And so they assume that he's gone and he's dead and then the famine hits where they live and so they travel under their father's command down into Egypt and we learned a couple weeks ago that about 20 years have passed so Joseph's gone from 17 to somewhere in his late 30s and even his younger brother Benjamin would have been in his mid-30s probably would have been in his 30s Rob pointed out that a couple weeks ago now we don't know how much time has passed Joseph said last week we don't know exactly the passage of time but now we're several years into the separation that's been going on between Joseph and his family so father shows up I mean uh, the brothers show up and they come to Egypt to ask for food and they're brought before Joseph but they don't recognize him because he looks Egyptian he probably had those little short bangs the painted eyes you know maybe some 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 sh- he might have shaved his arms fellas <laughs> not at this church that's not gonna go well for you okay maybe maybe at the hipster church over in Asheville but here don't do that okay um, we're more into facial hair chest hair arm hair okay so Joseph's got some of them gold bracelets he's wearing sandals also a strange practice I think, for men. And so um, <laughs> that's purely my opinion, though, that last one. Okay, so, uh, so Joseph is unrecognizable, but he smells nice because they clean him up. And so the brothers come before him. He puts the brothers in jail for three days, and he starts messing with them. Now, what he does is he starts a series of tests because he won't. Listen, y'all, his goal is to restore his family into the covenant promises of God. He's a man who's given an opportunity, and he's going to take command of that opportunity and honor the Lord. And what he's going to teach us in these verses that we're going to look through over the next 20, 25 minutes, what he's going to teach us is that he's going to teach us about repentance, he's going to teach us about forgiveness, and he's going to teach us about reconciliation. These are three very important words in the life of a Christian. Forgiveness This is significant. Forgiveness is something that only requires one person 
in a party of two people. I can forgive someone whether they seek that forgiveness or not. Jesus forgave those who didn't ask for it. Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Don't hold their sin against them. Forgiveness, one party event. Uh, repentance is a one party event. Repentance is when I ask for forgiveness, I turn from my action, and I no longer walk in that offensive action, offensive to God or offensive to someone else. Repentance, one party event. Repentance is when I turn from my sin, and maybe repentance is the request of forgiveness where I go to someone, I say, I've sinned against you, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? But only, I, I, I can control repentance, but I can't control whether or not forgiveness is extended. Reconciliation is when two parties have an offense between them and repentance and forgiveness are brought together and forgiveness is extended and received. Repentance is extended and received and two people that were at odds are brought together. In this story, we're going to see all of these and we're going to see them in a progression. So in chapter 44, beginning in verse 1, what's happened is Joseph has met with his brothers. He has not revealed himself to them. And he commanded them, you got to go back to, you got to go back home and you got to go get, I want to see the youngest brother. So all the older brothers have to go back to where the younger brother is and bring him back to uh, Egypt because Joseph wants to see him. And this is going to conclude the testing that Joseph is going to put his brothers through. Okay. So let's, let's pick it up with that massive overview of the life of Joseph that's been preached over the last few weeks. We got a lot of guests here tonight, a ton of guests. So I want to bring you up to speed. All right, Genesis 44, then he commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to the, his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? So what Joseph's doing is he's setting up the final test to, to, to test his brothers. And what he does is he, he sends, so the, the brothers are all going to leave and go home where the father is. And he sets up that youngest brother, Benjamin, to look like he's stolen something. And it's not just anything, but it's like his special, it's his special cup. Now, some of you have a special cup. I noticed there's a Yeti Rambler in that back window over there. That's n it's going to be special to me if it stays there one more day. I've given it till Monday. That's a, that's a $30 Yeti mug, if it's yours. You want to grab that? It's got a sticker that says five solas on it. If not, it's going to become my special mug. But some of you have a special mug. You got, some of you drink out of the same mug every day. For me, I like, I like variety. I think one of the most important decisions you make throughout the day is what you drink your morning coffee out of, right? So, so, so Joseph had, there's something to do with this special cup. He puts this in, Benj he has this planet on Benjamin 
so that when the brothers begin to go home, he's going to then send the servant after him, and they're going to find that Benjamin has stolen this cup. Now, the, the, the brothers have already earned, they think, Joseph's trust and respect because he planted money on them for the first test. We saw that last week, and they returned the money. Okay, So it's like, okay, he trusts us, so he sends them away. Verse 8, they even point out that, hey, we, you, we had money that wasn't ours, and we brought it back to you. You can trust us. We didn't keep all of that money in a faraway land. Why would we steal your cup? Why would we steal your cup? Verse 9, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. So they're, they, they're so rash. They're, it's like when somebody says, I'm starving. I'm dying. You, ever, you have a kid that does that? I'm starving. Nope, you're not. You're not. You're not but we, we tend to be overreactionary. I do this with when I'm too hot. I'm burning up. I'm dying. Not really just rash. Well, these guys, are something cultural going on with the, with the way that they express themselves. They're always so over the top. And so they're like, wait a minute. I mean, because we saw earlier, like, um, the one the one guy's talking to his dad and he's like if we don't bring benjamin back you can kill both of my sons which were that guy's grandsons like it's just irrational at times but there's this emotional irrational reaction and, and experience and so they uh they say no, no no none of us have the cup we didn't steal it if any of us did it you can kill that person he said let it be as you say okay you you want to pronounce a death sentence then we'll pronounce a death sentence let it be as you say. he is some is my battery's going out you think you think i'm not connected all the way on the other side of the pocket all right it's like jesus and the fish Throw the net off the other side. All right. <laughs> That'll work. I never questioned it in the Gospels. So, um, so, so it's like, okay, there's this rash reaction of whoever has the cup, you can kill that person. You know, like, just, just let, let that person die. And then the guy says, okay, it'll be as you say. Whoever is guilty of stealing the cup. We'll kill him or we'll take him or whatever his life will be required of him. And the rest of you will be considered innocent. In other words, we're not going to hold this crime to the whole group of you, only to the one guy, whoever is guilty. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. And he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. I want you to remember the dream that Joseph had. And we said in chapter 37 that you will hear people say, Joseph was a brat, Joseph was a punk, Joseph was entitled, Joseph was snotty. And we, we considered that maybe Joseph had the hand and anointing of the Lord on his life, and he was responsible. Maybe he didn't make the wisest choices. Maybe he didn't use the best discretion, but he heard from the Lord and simply expressed what God had shown him. And we've seen through Joseph's life that ultimately God was speaking to Joseph, and here to fulfillment of the vision God gave him, all of the brothers have bowed before Joseph. And not, this is not even the first time. They're bowing before Joseph. 
They're bowing before him. And not only are they bowing before him, but they're tearing their clothes. This was a sign of death or impending doom or grief related to death. These guys are certain that at least Benjamin has just been given a death sentence. And so if you think about um, when people would tear their clothes, this was a cultural thing. And it was always, it, all, it, it typically had to do with death or mourning. So Reuben, when he realized that Joseph 20 years ago had been sold into slavery, thought he had been killed by a wild animal. He tore his clothes. When Jacob in chapter 37 found out his son was dead, he tore his clothes. Now these guys begin to grieve the death of their youngest brother, Benjamin. Reuben tore his clothes in Genesis 37. The brothers tear their clothes here. He also says, don't you guys know that I practice divination? Now keep in mind, his, uh, Joseph's ability to interpret the king's dreams would have probably spread far and wide. This would have been, I mean, people would have talked. And so this idea of divination was a pagan idea, but these guys would have heard, this guy's got some sort of secret potion or magic or sorcery, something like that. And so Joseph is just sort of fueling those stories to serve what, what goal he has in this situation. So the scene is all of the brothers are here. The youngest brother has been caught in what looks like stealing from the, the, from Joseph and all of the brothers are here and they're down on their face before the king and they're freaking out because they feel like their brother's going to die now and they got to go back to their father who literally said if this happens and you take my son to Egypt and he dies like his brother I'm going to die I'm going to go down it's going to bring me to an, to an early grave verse 16 and Judah said what shall we speak what shall we say to my Lord what shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves and I want you to listen to, to the way that Judah speaks in these verses. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. So he's recognizing, this is interesting, he's recognizing that they are guilty, but they're not guilty for what they've done. They're guilty for something that they did 20 years ago. And this is a, this is, I think this is really helpful for us because we tend to think this way. And, and even this is, I think, a human tendency, not just a tendency among Christians. This is a human tendency. Like in the secular world, people use the word karma or uh, poetic justice is a phrase people will use. The idea is I have to pay for my past sins. It might be years later. It might have, I remember counseling a couple one time, and they were, they were so upset because she had had an abortion in her youth, and now she was having trouble getting pregnant, and she felt like God was punishing her. I think Judah's making a mistake here that sort of goes contrary to what the gospel teaches, which is when Jesus brings a person under the blood, he cleanses them from unrighteousness. Judah's sort of expecting to now pay for his own sin. He's, he's saying, well, I didn't, we didn't do this, but we did that other thing, and I guess now karma has caught up with us, and we got to pay for it. Verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. It's Judah's trying to make a, a bargain and say, look, we can't, like, don't let, don't let him, don't, don't let, just let us all stay. Keep us together. Verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said, and this is where the story gets so beautiful because to this point in the book of Genesis, 
Joseph's really the only guy that's emerged as like a type of Christ that we can identify with and we can go, man, this guy is really uh, a reflection of the love of the Lord and of a man of faith. And now watch what Judah says and does. Then Judah went up to him and said, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, have you a father or a brother? And he said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to the Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So he recounts what we saw last week. He's recounting what we studied last week. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down if our younger brother uh, if our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. She's continuing to recount what we studied last week. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take him, if you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah's response is to me one of the most powerful pictures of a changed life and a humbled and broken man that I think I've witnessed in all of the scriptures. He is only thinking of others. He is thinking of Benjamin and Jacob, and he's thinking of his brothers. He has no regard for his own life, no regard for his own welfare. The man who scammed and schemed and connived to rob a prostitute who turned out to actually be his widowed daughter-in-law, the man who would lie and deceive their father and would be willing to sell their brother into the slave market in prisons of Egypt. He is now willing and even pleading to be enslaved in an Egyptian prison in order that his brother may go free and his father might live out his days in peace with no more anguish or grief. What a change from the man who calls the anguish and who caused the anguish and grief of his father and condemned his brother, the very brother he is unknowingly now speaking to, to slavery and imprisonment. The change in Judah is amazing. I want you to think about this for a minute. Judah is saying to Joseph, who he doesn't know is his brother, he's a representative, an emissary of the king, or a representative of the king, let me go into the Egyptian dungeon, which ironically is the dungeon that Judah was responsible for sending Joseph into. And he's saying, let me go into the prison and be a prisoner here so that my brother can go free. 
all of a sudden, we've got a new person emerging out of the story who we see the life that comes from redemption. We see the hope that comes from redemption. We see the peace that can come from redemption. Judah's a changed dude. Like, I don't, I don't know what all has happened in the time, but he's a changed guy. I think there's a couple of applications. One is, when someone is changed by the power of the Lord, that change will be evident. And the other one is, if there's somebody you're praying for that you think is, like, beyond hope, they're not beyond hope. The Lord can change someone's life. I'll never forget my granddad's life being changed when he was almost 80 years old when he came and stayed with us for a couple months. Like God can change a person's life no matter where they are, where they've been, what they've done. It was a, last week um, we were leading a revival service at a church in middle Georgia and there was, the pastor was trying to get people to come and there was one night where um, this uh, lady that was in the church showed me a text that she had gotten where she was trying to get a friend of hers to come. Every night she's trying to get this friend of hers to come. And she showed me the text where the girl said, I just don't feel worthy. Like, I don't feel worthy. I think, you know, one of the biggest lies that, that people face is that there is a, there's, there's sin that's too big for the grace of Jesus. Or there's, you've gone too far that God can't bring you back. And the reality is that as long as a person's got breath in their lungs, the hope of the gospel is a real hope for that person. If that's somebody that you love or care about, the hope of the gospel is real for that person. And something that stood out to me in this, in this passage is in verse 34 when he said, after Judah has said, let me be the prisoner and let my brother go free. He says, I fear to see that the evil, the evil that would find my father. And it's like the first time that we see uh, Judah in, at any point in the story expressing like a fear or a concern so he's not just growing soft and and in in terms of how he sees other people he's growing fearful of repercussions and consequences the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and then what he's doing is he's showing us what a repentant heart looks like what we see is repentance and we said earlier it takes one person to act in repentance you can repent and then live with the consequences or live with the results. You can't, you can't control how somebody responds to you. But he throws himself at the mercy of what he thinks is a pagan king. Dude's, you know, Joseph is married to the high priest's daughter. And not only that, but he says, you pr I practice divination. I'm a sorcerer. I'm a, uh, like, like That's the implication. So he's kind of thrown himself at his mercy. Verse 1, chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. So the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They just like freaked these guys out completely spun them out. I mean, they can't even answer. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're completely speechless. I don't have words. I don't know what to say. I don't even know how to react. He's like, okay, guys, I'm Joseph. And they just look at him. Who? Joseph. He's been speaking in another language through an interpreter, remember? I'm Joseph. It's me. Hey. He's like, I, like, I don't know, do they have like an inside joke or a family, you know, 
Was there some punch? I don't know. They're just looking at him. They can't believe it. And he's like, I'm your brother. It's me, Joseph, that you sold into slavery. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now not, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph is seeing this through hindsight. This is amazing because what he's doing is he's recognizing the sovereignty of God in the bigger picture of the situation. Sometimes you've got to live through some things before you can really trust in the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 55, 8, 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So he's trusting the sovereign hand of God. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. In other words, remember the covenant promises that God made to Moses and to our grandfather Abraham. I am the, the tool that God is using in the master plan of building this nation that's going to bring the, the plan of God's salvation and redemption to the entire world. And part of what had to happen is you had to sell me into slavery so that I would end up in Egypt, so that I end up in this position because our God is bigger than all of our circumstances. He's bigger than man's sin. He's greater than man's brokenness. He's bigger than everything that's happened up until, up until this point. I believe it, and I want you to believe it. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, uh, to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Go, I want you to go tell my dad. Go tell my dad that I'm alive and that I am the boss in Egypt. It's crazy. It's crazy. You ever heard that saying, truth is stranger than fiction? You can't. Hollywood can't produce something like this. It's like all part of this big plan of redemption. The whole Bible ties together, man. God, the gospel is the work of God in history. And this is a key piece of that. And Joseph's like, okay, you know how you said that our dad, and they're still, they're still I don't know what they're doing. Uh, uh, they're dismayed. They're confused. They're bewildered. And it's like, you know how you said that our dad has grieved and he's been so torn up over this. I want you to go back and tell your, da tell your dad, tell my father, tell our father that I'm alive. And tell him that I have ascended to the very throne of Egypt. And that's why I was sold into slavery. And then I want you to get him and bring him here. Verse 14. We're only going to 15. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept on them after his brother's after that, his brothers talked with him. 
He's crying, they're crying. And then they're like, let's just sit down and talk. What are the last 20? He's like, listen, guys, I'm not mad at you. Let me tell you all that God's done. Then, I mean, I'm just imagining six hours, eight hours. I don't know how long goes by. Put on another pot of coffee. Then there was this one time I was in prison, and there was this guy, he was a baker, and this other guy, he was a cupbearer, and he tells them that story, you know? And then one of the brothers is probably like, you're not going to believe what Judah's been up to. You think today was good. That guy's crazy. You're like, I don't know. Like, what did that look like? You know, like this conversation of brothers being reunited. And here's what's happening. Judah has shown the fruit of repentance. And now Joseph has heaped and lavished in tears the grace of forgiveness and reconciliation has occurred. And now it's not just Joseph that's a picture of Jesus. It's Judah. That's a picture of Jesus. And when all of us are striving to be like Jesus, we will be what Paul calls to the Corinthians, ministers of reconciliation. We'll be people that bring life and hope and forgiveness and restored fellowship. And when somebody's outside the realm or parameters of your ability to control their circumstances, you'll trust that God can change them, just like Joseph trusted God would change Judah. And he did. Trusted God would change Simeon. And he did trusted God was going to bring about a greater plan because of a dream that he had. We don't have those kinds of dreams, but we have the word of God and the promises of God that Peter tells us are ours, that God's given us. If we live out what God's called us to live out, recognizing that sometimes his ways are not our ways, we're not going to always understand what's going on. We're not going to always feel worthy. You're not usually going to feel worthy, but you don't have the authority to self-condemn what God has already forgiven. You've got to live in grace, grow in grace, extend grace. When we realize what God's done, I think one of the reasons that Joseph was so good to his brothers is because at a young age, he trusted the Lord for salvation. And the fruit of your own salvation is that you'll show kindness to others. Let me tell you something. You know how many people, some of you tonight, maybe, this might be you, you're living in the prison of holding something against someone else. Maybe it's a grudge. Maybe it's a hurt. Maybe somebody caused you pain and they don't even know it and you're holding it against them. They didn't live up to an expectation you had. They haven't been what you thought they would be in your life. Or maybe they do know it. Maybe they hurt you and they did it on purpose. You don't have the power to reconcile that relationship. Only God does. But you have the power to forgive and release them even if they haven't asked for it. And when you do, your own chains will fall off. Just like the chains of Joseph's bondage, physical bondage fell off, the greater chains of any pride or grudge or resentment or anger or spite or revenge, he had rele he'd been released from those chains a long time ago because he said, this is all part of God's plan for my life. What? Let me ask you this. What's your faith like? Because if you trust in God's grace for your life, let everything else go, man. Quit holding that grudge. Quit holding that resentment. Quit holding that anger. If it's, if it's someone that you genuinely need to go and have a conversation with, the scripture lays that out for us. Jesus said, don't you dare go into the house of worship if you've got a grudge that you're holding against somebody. If it's possible to go to that person, go to that person. If it's a dead parent, then you can't go to them, release them. Sometimes death feels like this great separation 
But man, forgiveness can be extended to a person that's already gone on into eternity. The flip side of that is, maybe you need to go to somebody. Judah, what did Judah do? He just owned it, man. Judah owned a sin he didn't even commit. Did you catch that in the story? We're guilty. Put me in prison. It's on me. This is what Jesus does. The writer says that there was no deceit found in his mouth. He never sinned, and yet he would go to the cross for us. Judah becomes this Christological figure in this part of the story, saying, exchange him for me. Let me go to his punishment. Maybe that's something that, that stirs your heart, but I know this, probably everybody, all of us in this room, there's probably friction between you and somebody. And maybe you can't work that out because it does take both people ready to extend grace and forgiveness to reconcile. And sometimes things are hard and complicated and difficult. But you can, before the Lord released that person, give it to Jesus and walk in the freedom that comes from it. I think that's what Jesus would have us to learn. Repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. We're called to all these things. We have the opportunity to live out all of these things. And I think when we do, we experience a deep level. I believe that at this point in Judah's life, with all of the mistakes he had made and all those brothers, I mean, these guys are... Their, their, their swords are wet with the blood of innocent people. And they experienced grace in a moment when they thought they were going to experience death. And imagine what they, how, how they viewed the Lord after that. Pray that we would learn from that and likewise that we would view the Lord in that way. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that tonight you'd take the gravity of this story. You'd help us to understand your grace, your kindness, and your goodness. Lord, it's been a, a little bit longer night than normal, but um, such a good time to be with your people, to study your word, Lord, to pray over loved ones and friends and part of our faith community, trust in you to, to shape us and grow us. Lord, if there's one here tonight that is not first and foremost reconciled to you, I pray that they would understand that the gospel is that Jesus has made a way for sinners to be forgiven for brokenness to be put whole again, for the wounded to be healed, for the rebellious and the obstinate to be humbled and to submit their will to the Lord. And the gospel of Jesus is the ultimate forgiveness that comes when we, before the Lord, repent of our sins and reconciliation occurs between us and God. Things are put right. Lord, I pray for each of us in this church and in this worship service tonight that maybe we have, we are at odds. Maybe there's, there's a grudge that's being harbored or held and there's a bitterness, a seed of some. Maybe there's an expectation. It could be husband and wife. It could be parent. It could be an employee or an empl something, a friend where an expectation has not been met. And now there's a bitterness that is welled up. I pray that you would bring that into the light and that, that folks would do business with you tonight. Love you and thank you for this story in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.